Hey, y'all. You are listening to the Palsies with Palsies podcast, a podcast where two best friends talk about disability and LGBTQI plus uh, issues and representation and everything else in pop culture. I am the Palsy Rebecca Mitz. And I'm the Palsy Justin Hancock. Hello, Rebecca. Hello, Justin. I feel like given the the trajectory of this week's episode and particularly after the uh, last couple of episodes and definitely the last one we released, I need like a sound machine with ba 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 and uh, and uh, like confetti cannons behind me because today is a particularly if I can say this, and I do this with a relative degree of fear and trembling given our current cultural menu, menu a particularly celebratory episode, particularly after some of the other stuff we've covered of late. Yes, um, because July is Disability Visibility <laughs> Month, um, we've decided that today, I know it rhymed, it was cute. Um, <laughs> we are going to be talking about the ADA, um, Americans with Disabilities Act. And obviously, I know about a crumb about the ADA. Um, every basically, and I'll be very honest, most of the things I know about the ADA came from Justin. <laughs> so <laughs> So this episode basically is going to be me interviewing Justin, um, uh, kind of, you know, like Oprah Winfrey or like, what's her name? Is it Barbara Streisand? Is that her name? From- no, no, but no. I know you're going to. No, who, who did I just say? Did I just say the, the Broadway? <laughs> the Broadway actor? Cut! Cut! And that was that was hilarious on two fronts because you took a real and genuine swing in the mess. I, I was real confident too when I said it. I was real confident. And interviewer Barbara Walters and Barbara Walters. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold on. You know, I'm gonna interview like Oprah Winfrey <laughs> or Barbara Walters, right? Yeah. Thanks. I'll let it that for now. <laughs> yeah, you better leave it in. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> I'm the interviewer. I'm the Broadway singer here. I do appreciate that you took such a, a strong swing of the miss and somehow in a move that is very on brand, ended up with semi-gay icon Barbara Streisand. You know, she's just kind of always around. <laughs> just at any given point, she's just kind of around. So we invoke her name today. <laughs> and okay. and Ms. Walters and hope that. This bodes well, I think. This bodes well for today's show. For those of you that had Barbara Streisand and journalism on your balcony with Paul Bigo cards, you win. 
<laughs> okay, get it together, Justin. We've got a very important and serious interview to conduct. Uh, okay. okay, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> okay, he's back. Okay, so we're talking about the ADA, and I will be interviewing Justin about it, basically. Um, I mean, but we're friends, so obviously at some point we're going to go off and do whatever we're going to be doing. But um, I, so besides the fact that you are a man with a disability and you are obviously directly affected by the ADA, um, I, you did right before COVID hit, uh, you were in the process of doing a ton of research about it. Yes, I have. And um, I was right before COVID hit. Um, and I can't believe I actually get to use this phrase, not on a goof. Um, but I've always wanted to say this out loud about myself. I literally wrote the book on this mm -hmm. uh, one of many uh, books on this and you're right and on the verge of 2019 as a part of getting ready for the 30th anniversary um i was working with a friend on a uh, first person sort of retrospective project now, sadly, the world had different ideas and said, no, you'll spend the next 18 months in your house um, bleaching your groceries. So uh, apparently not. Uh, so that project has not come to fruition. But yeah, the ADA, such as it is, is something that I am, I'm a history nerd anyway. And when it gets to be, um, in my own backyard, so to speak, it just is all the more satisfying. So I'm glad that you were open to doing this and that we get to do this as a part of Palsies with, with Palsies. Yeah. And I was actually at the time when Justin was doing this, um, I think at the start of it, we were living with y'all. Yeah, because we were living with y'all up until 2019. So I got to see like firsthand as Justin is planning things out, trying to figure out interviews. Um, so can you talk to us as if you have, um, I guess, give us an insight into what you learned about the history of the ADA and maybe like what you knew and then kind of what you learned as you were researching it and doing these interviews? Yeah, yeah. Uh... And a lot of this, a lot of what I'm going to share actually comes about from research that I did, not only from the project we're referring to or around the project we're referring to, but from the first section of my book, The Julian Way, A Theology of Fullness for All of God's People, published by the fine folks at Wittenstock in 2018, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Advertisement finished. Um, but yeah, so the Americans with Disabilities Act was really a consequence, strangely enough, of a small group of uh, persons with disabilities who worked 
both in government and in government adjacent um, advocacy roles. And oddly enough, uh, in a strange way, we have the policy of Ronald Reagan to think for the idea. And I have crossed myself and made sure to put salt down on the floor as I say that so a hole doesn't open up and swallow me whole. Um, uh. <laughs> because in the mid 80s around 1985 and 1986 um, Ronald Reagan put Vice President Bush in charge of a committee to trim trim bureaucracy basically and re-examine sort of the social service sector and the first President Bush, or then Vice President Bush, having a disabled, I believe, sister, kept not trimming um, areas of federal bureaucracy, but finding ways to strengthen the committee on the handicapped, which was sort of the governmental body that was pushing for ADA-like laws and kept sort of slowly advancing the ball towards the ADA. And I believe in 1986, there was a report called um, On the Handicap that laid out something like a nine-point plan about federal legislation for the disabled. And uh, at the time, as it was being circulated around the country, you had a man named Justin Dart who was on this council for the handicapped and those with disabilities going around the country and gathering firsthand accounts of disabled people's experiences mm -hmm. and giving voice of what a federal law could do for them and you all, you also had uh, lawmakers like getting getting really nervous because this report that came out was said to be so liberal that that Ted Kennedy wouldn't produce it. So you already had some pushback, even as the stories were starting to to emerge of people with disabilities. And around 1988 were the first federal hearings around the ADA, and they weren't going to produce legislation in 1988, but they were just to form formally get the stories of those with disabilities on the record and start the process of is this legislation we want? Is this something we should pursue? And uh, and you you got firsthand accounts of people who grew up in the 1950s and 60s who taught themselves to write because they um, 
they went to a disabled high school where they weren't given the academic challenges of other mainstream students. Uh, so they had to basically teach themselves. You heard from folks like, like Ed Roberts, who basically lived in a hospital on the campus of the University of California, Berkeley, mm -hmm. uh, while getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And um, the hearings were really the first hearings in 1988 were really the first period in history where the stories of folks with disabilities were were mainstreamed into the public uh, bloodstream, as it were. And I can give you a little bit more about disability history um, if you want a little bit later, because I'm I could talk about this for four hours, and I'm trying to really narrow it yeah. um, really trying to focus in on one thing yeah and as a part of the work I did for that project in 2019 and 2020 um, I got to interview uh, I believe his name is con former congressman from Iowa Tom Hart who was one of the first that really shepherded the legislation of the ADA through Congress and really took the chance. And it was, it was really about, at the core, it began from a place of trying to get those with disabilities off of the public dole, so to speak, and give them vocational opportunities and opportunities to get a a paying and full-time job, and then it broadened out as the stories came out and really became about access legislation in a more robust form. So it was really an amazing process and a really moving process to watch it and to go back and relive that time in history as someone born in 1981 growing up in the early 90s who has basically benefited all my life from the ADA uh, to go back and hear those stories and hear about the the woman who said please pass this legislation so I can do what the generations before me couldn't do and get a full-time job or to the 12-year-old say, I want to go to school with all my friends and the um, Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which was one of the immediate predecessors <clears throat> of the ADA, has helped do that. But to enshrine the ADA into law is to give me even more access to the world around me. So what was life like if you were disabled before the ADA in America? Like did, I, you've mentioned some a little bit, but like, do you have a broader picture of what it was like if you had a disability before the ADA? Yes. Um, <clears throat> and to answer that question, is really to say um, it really depended on who you were and where you lived. 
um, mm. because there were centers for independent living, uh, which is kind of the first advocacy group and advocacy network of um, advocacy for disabled people by disabled people. There were centers for independent living in Boston, in California, in Illinois, and in other places as early as the early 70s, early to mid-70s, I should say. So if your family had the money and uh, was willing to support you going out and being a part of the community, you could do that. But there wasn't the, the public societal infrastructure to allow that so say if you wanted to board a bus mm -hmm. as a physically disabled individual in the 60s and 70s most often somebody would would have to help you and lift you onto that bus so that you could get to where you were going um, if you had to take the bus or, or you would have to have family members to drive you to work. So it was very piecemeal and very dependent on whether a workplace was willing to work with you and willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Same with educational institutions of there was mainstream mainstreaming, which is the process of placing a person with a disability in a regular educational environment mm -hmm. that that occurred in the late seventies, early eighties. But it was very, very much case by case. If, for instance, a history or math teacher or because of individual preference, didn't think that a person with a disability could learn or had the, the, the chutzpah to learn in the way that the rest of the students did. Any individual could shut the tap off and not really face mm. any consequences. So to say what was disability like before ADA, well, large-scale um, institutionalizing or what the disability community likes to refer to as disappearing of those with disabilities did not mm -hmm. end did not end until um, 1973, mm -hmm. which was not that long ago in the the grand scheme of things. So, um, yeah. But even post-73, when most, if not at all, uh, warehousing-type institutions like that shut, shut down for a number of years, um, there were laws on the books, such as the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, which I believe was passed in 1986, or uh, the laws that were passed regarding making government buildings accessible, uh, which I believe passed in 1978. So there were 
there were precursor laws on the books, but it was really hit or miss, and it really depended on an individual situation. So if I could use one word to describe the what it's like to be disabled or what it was like prior to 1990, it would be precarious mm. because you never knew when the hardship would let up or when if you had the luck to have a boss or a social situation that was fairly forgiving and amenable, you never knew when that was going to go away. And you didn't have a way of pushing back or legally being able to point to something to say, no, you have to follow this law. Yeah. The best example I can think of that sort of situation is the the laws that were the immediate predecessor to the ADA were Regulation 504, which dealt with employment and employment accessibility and uh, assistance. Those laws were put into place or passed into federal law. Those regulations, I should say, were put into place in, I think, 1974, I think. And because you had the Nixon administration was in power when they were put into place and the, the labor secretary was not really amenable to enforcing those regulations, I don't think they were acted on until 1977 or so. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, pro- I'm probably getting those dates wrong. But you basically had a situation where these regulations set unenforced for close to four to five years. And you had disabled people all over the country, including in San Francisco. You had a sit-in where a bunch of disabled people went and occupied City Hall in San Francisco for 36 straight days. Damn. Is that the image that I'm thinking of, of um, people crawling up the steps, people who were in wheelchairs crawling up the steps, or is that a different time? Some of that did occur, yes. And as a part of these 504 uh, protests, as they were called, you had people crawling up the steps of both the Supreme Court and the U.S. Capitol. You had the sit-in in San Francisco, where people lived in the lived on the lived on the floor of the city administration for 36 days and risk of going without medication and you have the Black mm-hmm. Panthers who brought them food and mm-hmm. Glide Memorial United Methodist Church that helped them get showers and get bathed when the city cut off the water supply to try to end the lock-in. 
Oh, wow. Or sit in. Um, so you had some really grassroots activism in the late 70s and early 80s that sort of put pressure on the federal government to make federal legislation a real priority. And it still took, um, I think, 13 years from 504 to ADA. So just wild stuff. And that's, that's not... Um, and that's not even to go into what um, transportation for the disabled was like. As the ADA was being debated, one of the largest groups that came out against ADA was the uh, National Transportation Union or like the the labor group and the trade group for like city buses and civic transportation because uh-huh. they, they knew how much money it would cost. Mm. So as a way of, of highlighting the need for accessible transportation, you had people chaining themselves to city buses. Oh, damn. And uh, laying down in front of city buses and the, uh, the national conference for the trade group was, I believe, in Houston at one point, and the um, activist went and blocked the doors at that uh, conference and, like I said, chained themselves to city buses at that conference and basically got the... Um, the labor group to admit that we needed to have um, accessible public transportation beyond just paratransit, like I'll come and pick you up at your house, but actually on the route. But it really took some, some daring and some courage to make that happen. So what I'm hearing is that the, the path, for the ADA was a hard one and one with like that took a a lot of as you've said courage and people really doing a lot like it took a Mm -hmm. lot of saying we're not moving from this spot we're gonna stay here and then other people coming in and helping them essentially like supporting them in the midst of uh, their protests and activism and like physics and the very physicality sounds very physical a lot of the stuff that had that they did that the people in the disability community were doing to ensure their rights it was and um i think that's something that the uh the disabled folks who are my age and uh generations after me always need to remember is the sort of physical peril it took to pass ADA and I did not know this to use a very palsies for palsies favorite word to describe this of intersectionality this is where both sides Mm -hmm. of our podcast are going to come together um when you were looking at the ADA, one of the main 
sources of opposition was, um, and again, this is not me choosing a political side, it's the truth, was conservative uh, Christians mm-hmm. be, because they thought that um, the Americans with Disabilities Act was sort of, a, uh, excuse the phrase, a backdoor support and avenue for advocating for LGBTQ persons. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So because they did not know how, and keep in mind, this is 1988, mm-hmm. 1989. So the HIV um, oh. AIDS epidemic is just the yeah. crest the real crest of the wave is occurring at this moment. Um, And you had conservative senators who were concerned that um, Christian schools and the federal government was going to have to hire gays and lesbians and going to have to, like, medically cover... um, HIV, AIDS, education, and medication. And so it's not something that has ever really comfortably settled, even after it was passed. Well, I think now we can shift into the kind of now, so kind of understanding at least the kind of a broad overview of the history of how we got the ADA and then now, okay, what is the ADA actually? Like, what does it do? And I would definitely encourage personal experience from you. Um, And obviously you are one person that has experienced the ADA and other people obviously experience it differently and need it in different ways. But kind Mm -hmm. of what, what is... And you can combine this, but kind of what is your, what is the ADA? Well, um, if you have the, and I, I know before the show we talked about you having the statute pulled up in front of you. So I mm-hmm. welcome you to actually read it at one point or another. Um, but essentially the ADA is the civil rights for those with disabilities and those with um, diversely embodied realities, or when it was passed, it was most often called um, civil, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, or some older folks called it the Civil Rights for the Handicapped, Civil Rights Act for the Handicapped. And it basically ensures protections and access to any governmental or any societal structure for those with disabilities and the ways in which you most often see that played out in daily life is the um, Americans with Disabilities Act mandates that there, there has to be disability access to 
businesses and to community institutions, and that most often comes in or most readily can be seen in the form of physical ramps and um, um, handicapped or disabled parking spots in grocery stores. Those weren't those weren't mandated before the ADA, but it also covers stuff like um, a person can't be discriminated against at their workplace because they have a disability that, uh, that a, um, a workplace has to provide a certain level of adaptation or access for an equally qualified individual with a disability. Mm-hmm. Um, where, I, where I really first experienced the ADA was in, was in college. Um, colleges and um, institutions are obliged to have um, disability services offices and allow folks with disabilities who have the proper documentation of their disability modifications to attend school and the mm. the classrooms have to be accessible when you say accessible yeah. for like to get kind of specific when you say like a classroom needs to be accessible what do you, what do you mean well i can give you a uh, an example from my own life mm-hmm. um when i was in graduate school I went to, as, as you did, I went to Perkins School of Theology, and I was not the first student with disabilities they'd ever had, but I think I was the first student they'd had in a long time. But it was required. I was admitted. I was uh, had the grades to get in, had the uh, qualifications to get in. So the school had to make it where I could access my classes. Well, at the time, in the process of making their their campus or their part of campus visibly, physically accessible, but they weren't there yet. But there was one room that was. So all of my all of my classes took place in the uh, Selectman Auditorium, the auditorium um, that was on the first floor that I could easily reach. Mm -hmm. So that's where I had all of my classes. And I remember one particular professor who who I like a great deal, and I can't, I'm not going to mention who it was because that's not really relevant, but they very good-naturedly said on the first day of class, there are like nine of us here. I don't know why we're in the auditorium and I'm in the back of the room and I raised my hand and I said, yeah, that, that's my fault. <laughs> the, that's on me. And he goes, oh yeah, that would make, that would make sense. Thanks for clearing that up. Uh, but in order for me to have the educational access, that's what had to happen. So, because you're that, otherwise your chair 
could not have like fit through the doorway. Is that what you mean? Or like gone and could found not, like a seat, like got, gotten into a desk. Could not have fit through the doorway, could not have gotten upstairs, could not have done I mean, any number of things. <laughs> I mean, you might have been able to get up the stairs, Justin, but your chair definitely would not have. And getting down the stairs would have been, <laughs> really would have been <laughs> quite quite the endeavor, I think. This is where I get to quote one of my best friends, the late and much beloved um, Matt Burroughs mm -hmm. was asked by a lovely professor one time, Matt, can your chair make it downstairs? And Matt's response was once. <laughs> I mean which which may, may be and may continue to be the greatest mic drop in the history of Perkins <laughs> School of Theology. I mean, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> but, yes, to get back to the matter at hand, yeah, it, uh, the ADA guarantees a person with a disability has at least the opportunity to avail themselves of educational opportunities, employment opportunities, and basically anything that society has to offer. At least that's the idea of whether that happens in practice is up for great debate, uh, but that's the idea. Yeah. So I have it pulled up in front of me, or at least I have the like user-friendly new person looking into the ADA in front of me. Um, so yeah. basically says the ADA is exactly what you've said it is. The Americans with Disabilities Act is a federal civil right law that prohibits discrimination against people with disabilities in everyday activities. Um, and there's more to that. And then it describes which I did think was interesting, but I realized they had to, they have to do this, which is what a person with a disability is someone who, and then they describe, um, yeah. you know, cause they have to like define what that means. Um, and then they gave examples of disabilities, some of the disabilities listed for anyone who's interested, but cancer, diabetes, PTSD, HIV, autism, Cerebral palsy, deafness or hearing loss, blindness or low vision, epilepsy, mobile disabilities, intellectual disabilities, major depressive disorder, traumatic brain injury. And then, it, you know, and then ADA covers many other disabilities not listed here because obviously they cannot list every single thing because it maybe gets super specific. The five statutes and you've basically touched on, I think, basically all of them. Title one is employment. Title II, subtitle A is state and local government services like education, transportation. Uh, and then Title II, subtitle B is public transit, which as you kind of went into. Um, and mm. then Title III, businesses that are open to the public. So like restaurants, hotels, gyms, that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. And then Title IV is telecommunication companies. So telephone companies. For people that may briefly be like, what the hell is telecommunication? And then other, and then Title V, I think is kind of like 
a catch all for other stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is anything. like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything else not included in those other ones. And so, I mean, like, it covers a lot and it gives on here where you can file a complaint and stuff like that. Um, so, we kind of know what it's supposed to do and what it does do. Like it obviously like you were able to go to a university and they were like, okay, we're going to move. We're going to make sure that you can get into a classroom. So we're going to have all your classes in this auditorium. Um, mm-hmm. But so what has, what are problems that you see? Cause we've now seen the benefit of it. What are problems that are still going on even with the ADA or even in conjunction with the ADA? Well, there's there are two like situations I would like to highlight and then one sort of broadly more overarching um, uh, concept. Mm-hmm. But as you have stated, we laid out what the ADA covers there and you know, shock of shocks, culture and uh, communication and um, basically knowledge infrastructure or information infrastructure has shifted and changed and entirely transformed since 1990. Mm -hmm. Uh, When ADA was passed, the internet was not really a thing. Uh, when ADA was passed, um, internet commerce was not really a thing. When ADA was passed, we didn't really understand environmental triggers and conditions and um, disabilities nearly as well as we do now. Uh, just a number of reasons that people noticed as the ADA aged that it became less about advocating for those with disabilities in the law and more about proving whether somebody was disabled enough mm. to qualify for ADA. So in 2010, uh, I believe uh, the ADAA was passed, which is the Americans with Disabilities Act amendments were passed uh, to really address that it's, it's about advocacy for those with disabilities and not like proving whether somebody is disabled or not. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you had things like, what do we do with, with, stores that now have a largely internet-based presence, are they covered in ADA? And those laws um, and uh, an amendment or a group of amendments called the 21st Century Ed uh, Communications Act were put into place to really address some of the loopholes that were in the ADA and that people discovered as we went through, yeah, through the last, uh, the first 20 years or so of the ADA. 
And the second area that I would like to touch on is probably the one that's most painful for me (laughs) because it's literally the work I do. There is a religious exemption to the ADA. The Americans with Disabilities Act was passed and what you had was a number of Christian and other religious institutions almost immediately uh, filed for exemption from the ADA because, one, they knew it would cost so much money to uh, update the buildings and bring them to code, and two, some of it was the uh, HIV-AIDS situation we talked about, and any number of other reasons that folks would file exemptions and uh, religious institutions were granted that exemption. Um, So you had a situation in 2012, I believe, where a woman uh, who taught at a college, at a a Christian school in uh, Michigan, I believe, was diagnosed with narcolepsy, was on leave for treatment for six months or so, um, notified her administration that she would be able to return to class that next semester that her problem had been diagnosed and she had taken appropriate steps. And the day after she emailed the administration, the administration met with the church school board and the attendant congregation and said that this teacher was not going to be able to return. So they needed to find a replacement. And because in this certain situation, this teacher was designated a minister when she was asked to leave on the day she returned to work and subsequently fired, she sued the school. It went all the way to the Supreme Court. And because of the religious exemption, um, she lost because she was uh, designated a minister. So the religious exemption, I will say, in my life and in my work as a clergy person, the vast majority of folks that I have worked with at least attempt to pay lip service to the Americans with Disabilities Act and say, we should at the very least try to meet these standards. But not all the time, because they know they don't have to. So that's a particularly painful gap uh, that exists in the ADA. And more broadly, I would say the purpose of the Julian Way and something that we do in our work all the time is um, we try to flip the script. Mm -hmm. Most people, when I meet them in a work context or in a building where I am going to be for a while, say we are completely ADA accessible, um, this and this and that, as though that makes them 
remarkable. <laughs> and what I, tr what I try to indicate to folks as kindly as I can is the ADA um, has become a ceiling and something aspirational mm. where, when it really should be the other way around. It really should be the ADA is the floor. Right. And we should go up from there. Yeah. Because I recall the, I don't remember where it was, but that one play, that one building you went into that was, is, was like the most accessible building you had ever been in. And like you were, you could do everything. Like you were mm -hmm. completely independent and it wasn't, it wasn't just bare minimum. It was like, I remember you, we laughed about it. Like the stairs were in the back. Like there was a, like the ramp was in the forefront. And actually, if you wanted to use stairs, you had to kind of go behind the very cool ramp. To use yeah. Like, at, like you could do everything you, I don't remember where that was, but. That is the Ed Roberts campus in Berkeley, California. Most, if not all, of the uh, disability-related agencies and institutions for that part of the state of California, if not the whole state of California, are located in that building. And yes, you're very right. And I'll tell this story real quick. The only reason that there are stairs in that building, in an, in an ironic of all ironic twists, is because it is mandated by state law that there must be stairs <laughs> in a multi-story structure. So there's this beautiful art piece of a, a ramp that can fit three electric wheelchairs wow. uh, side by side. It's gorgeous. People with a wide range of disabilities use that building all the time. There are uh, door openers, not only at arm level, but at foot level in case a person who experiences paralysis uses that building as well, mm -hmm. in case they go in and can't open it with their hands, they can open it with their feet. Just uh, any number of the, the paper towel dispensers are at like chest level. Uh -huh. for someone in a chair. So it's the most universally accessible building, if not in the world, definitely in the United States. And yes, the only reason there's this tiny staircase that's tucked back into a, a building is two reasons. To give those with disabilities the opportunity to say out loud, see, see, this is what it's this is the rest of our lives. <laughs> Having to find the ramp or enter through the back door. See? <laughs> and because it's legally required to be there. But yeah, it's, it's that, that should be the norm. That should not be this wormhole type, like blissful nirvana experience. Yeah. So I think we can, as you say, land the start to land the plane. For you, we've sort of mentioned, you know, what it's supposed to do, kind of what it does do, and then 
places that it doesn't, it hasn't, doesn't quite work. And obviously, you know, there's people that try and skirt, skirt the system, obviously, such as some religious institutions. And then I'm sure businesses and other places, you know, say, oh, look, we, we are doing the absolute bare minimum. Um, but for you, what do you see as the way forward? I mean, we've kind of just kind of talked about it, but like for you, a, what is a way forward for the ADA or the future of the ADA? I would like two things. I would like the ADA to become so ubiquitous in the presence of diversely embodied people to become so commonplace that we don't even need the ADA because it's assumed that uh, people with disabilities will be in public spaces and be in public leadership. So mm. we do those things anyway, regardless of statute. Um, and secondly, I would really love it if the ADA were given the same sort of revolutionary treatment as the work of uh, Martin Luther King and Fannie Lou Hammer and Rosa Parks and Malcolm X and all of these civil rights pioneers that were were mm. quite, quite justifiably and understandably and appropriately so lauded as pioneers and who gave their lives for the absolutely just and glorious cause of racial uh, civil rights. We need to understand names like Justin Dart and Ed Roberts in in the same sort of terms and in those um and sandra perino uh these are chairpersons of the president's uh council on the handicap uh, at the time those folks need to be lauded alongside other civil rights leaders and luminaries and heroes because they are heroes and the the kind of lead up to the education and the transportation especially would make a hell of a movie and there's a there's a great there's an absolutely fabulous documentary called um, Crip Camp mm -hmm. that was on Netflix last year and you can still find it on Netflix and it it was basically about a summer camp where several of the, the ADA and disability heroes interacted and intersected at this summer camp for those with disabilities. And just to see that happened, um, it was as if there was a diner where Malcolm X and Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King and Medgar Evers and um, others just happened to meet for coffee. Uh -huh. That's the sort of, if you know anything about disability history and you start to look at who was in that, at that summer camp in the early to 
late 60s, early 70s, you start to go, here's that person, here's this person. How did this happen? <laughs> and, why, and why are we not like building statues yeah. in this place? So I would really like it to be honored as not disability history, but a piece of American history that's mm. that's as important as those other justifiably very important things. Right. Yeah, it's it's like and in a lot of ways, because you get a lot of um sexuality exploration and um identity exploration out of the disabled culture that bridges with the LGBTQ civil rights and bridges Mm -hmm. with the racial civil rights, you can't separate uh, the three of them, particularly same sex um, and human sexuality, civil rights and disability, because there's so much crossover. I mean, the ADA, um, does not come about with the sort of vehemence and political power that it does <clears throat> without Stonewall and Stonewall and the uh, resultant um, LGBTQ civil rights movement doesn't have the same sort of staying power without the disability civil rights movement and its connection to HIV AIDS and not just that, but just in sort of being bedfellows and uh, platforming one another. So you can't separate civil rights. Civil rights is civil rights. Yeah. And I think to kind of end it a little bit, because again, I can tell you could just go on and obviously, um, and we probably will return to it, but that, you know, when you were mentioning that there were some conservative Christians that were opposed to the ADA as, you know, the, that it was also about LGBTQ rights, or they wouldn't have called it that, but civil rights. And it's like, they weren't wrong. They weren't wrong in that assumption, but their resistance to it was because they were supporting it. They support each other and they build on each other in the same way that I think disability civil rights probably built built upon racial civil rights and you know and then lgbtqia rights built upon disability civil rights and yeah i think you're right and it's a shame that there are people that are willing to deny one deny kind of all of it to deny like a just even a part of those you know yeah and to be fair and to be honest and transparent, because this show is nothing if not um, honest and funny. And like, if there are warts to be seen, we're pretty good at showing you the warts and the shiny smiles. Um, it's a real black mark in the disabled community. And for us as a legislative and a political um action force um, that as the HIV AIDS crisis was unfolding, there was a significant part of the disabled community that went, whoa, no, thank you. We're not those people. 
Mm. Uh, which, which, to be fair, again, <laughs> sort of a disclaimer to a disclaimer to a disclaimer. Um, that's what power does. It mm. takes this this disenfranchised group and pits it against this disenfranchised group and says, if we can get you fighting with one another, we cannot pay attention to either one to either one of you. Right. So it behooves us all to recognize the God-given humanity within everybody. And that's the that's another key sort of extrapolated lesson I take from the ADA and the civil rights for those with disabilities that struggle. So yeah. Thanks for letting me talk about it, though. I really could go on and on, as you can see. Well, I'm glad you got to share all that with us. Um, and me. I mean, I, I knew some of that stuff just by, uh, just by being around you for multiple years. Um, but I always like hearing about it more and more because you clearly have all this knowledge and experience inside you, bud. Well, thank you. And it really is a, this is a, this podcast is one of the more fun things I get to do every time we record, but it really does bring home the importance of lifting up different voices, whether it's in crazy pop culture and when you and I are mad about stuff and need to highlight a certain issue or in stories like this and getting to relive some history. So glad you got to come along for the ride, folks. Rebecca, why don't you tell the folks where they can find us? Uh, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and um, anywhere where basically you can find podcasts. And um, you can also find us deep in a library doing deep, deep research about the ADA and other civil rights before we grab a book off the wall and it opens up into a dungeon that opens with a long ramp spiraling all the way down. What's down there? We don't know, but we're going to investigate it. Join us next time on Palsies with Palsies, the librarian <laughs> edition. <laughs> I I did not know where we were going to land that plate, but I like it. I like it. I do. <laughs> well, folks, while we go and do our deep research in the catacombs, Y'all go and put some good out of the world, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.